0: Hello, I'm Carl Raymond, the host of the Gilded Gentleman History Podcast. It's ball season. At least it was in the Gilded Age. Winter was the time for fancy dress balls, grand dinners, and even Mrs. Astor's famous annual opera ball. In this encore episode of Having a Ball, the Gilded Age's most outrageous parties discover just what went into throwing a ball and just what it was like once you got there. So put on your best silks and satins, and I'll see you at the ball. As springtime begins in New York City and the sun begins to warm the frozen ground of Central Park, the thoughts of Social New York turn to one event and one event only. It's an event that perhaps is the most exclusive on the Gotham social calendar. A mere 600 or so names land on the coveted invitation list. The final list, crafted carefully and strategically by Vogue editor Anna Wintour and her staff, is a who's who of the who's who. Even the news this year that a friend of a friend that I barely know got to go conjured excitement and days of emerald envy. The Gala Night, always the first Monday in May, is covered by the national and international media as stars, star watchers, stars to be, and stars that were, along with the current gratin, of American tastemakers ascend the grand steps of New York's Metropolitan Museum of Art. The annual Met Gala always strikes me in so many ways as a direct descendant, you could say, of a Gilded Age ball— Glamour, exclusivity, anticipation, details flung out to a voracious press, and then the next day, as staff sweep up fallen rose petals and retrieved drop napkins, well, it's all over for another year. In this show, I will be taking a look at several of the Gilded Age's grandest balls that, like today's Met Gala, defined one's place in the social and entertainment cosmos. A Gilded Age ball wasn't just a fun night out, it carried great social significance and we'll be looking at how a ball actually worked, what it meant if you got invited, what it meant if you didn't, and what you could expect once you got there. And ladies, I must say, the mystery of how one coped for hours wearing what felt like an iron corset... Under layers of heavy satin Trying to dance in crowded, overheated ballrooms Nibble at the buffet Remember every detail of proper etiquette Knowing that every eye was on you Never forgetting the stakes of finding a husband And securing your financial and social welfare All of this while pretending to have the time of your life The answer to that, and how one just really did that Has been lost to the mists of time. But I will say, rest assured, as you will see, glamorous though it is, the Met Gala has nothing on the kind of thing that used to go on. I'm Carl Raymond, the host of the Gilded Gentleman History Podcast, where we journey into corners light and dark of America's Gilded Age, France's Belle Époque, and England's late Victorian and Edwardian eras. On a March night in 1883, Alva Vanderbilt fiddled with her headpiece. It was a velvet diadem encrusted with jewels topped by even more jewels in the shape of a peacock. She stood in her salon in her brand-new chateau on Fifth Avenue, the room a faux replica of a drawing room from the France of François I in her determined campaign to rise through new york's social ranks she had built the most magnificent european inspired private home the city could imagine she teased the press with its layout and treasures and tonight march 26 1883 she was throwing the largest and most glittering ball new york had seen in its history who said you couldn't buy your way in but on the night of her ball Alva had two things to guarantee her smooth sailing past the gates of social acceptance. Her ball was in theory in honor of her old school chum Consuelo Isnaga who had done quite well for herself and as one of the famed penny princesses had married the British Lord Mandeville thus becoming a lady. But wait there's more. Lady Mandeville's husband was in line to become a Duke upon his father's death thereby making her a duchess. No one standing in New York with any sense would decline an invitation to be in the presence of an assured duchess-to-be. Secondly, everyone knows the grand gatekeeper of society was the Mrs. Astor, and Alva had finally succeeded in having Mrs. Astor call on her, even if it was only a calling card left at the door, and thus she could invite her to her ball, and she was coming. Score two for Alva. One of the advantages to securing one's place in society through either going to or throwing a ball yourself was the press. Newspapers, journals, and the tabloid press took off in the latter part of the 19th century just in time for the most delicious details of balls to be ready fodder for their pages. And savvy hostesses like Alva knew, like some do today, just how to manipulate the press for maximum effect. We'll be returning to Alva's ball to see just how she planned it, what went on, and dipping as well into Mrs. Astor's annual opera ball. And we'll end with a look at the over-the-top recreation of an evening at Versailles thrown by the insurance heir James Hazen Hyde in the ballroom of Sherry's. While Alva's great ball opened the door of society for her, not all balls had the same aftermath and repercussions— James Hyde's extravagance toppled him from society altogether, and perhaps the grandest of all Gilded Age balls, the Bradley Martin Ball held at the Waldorf in 1897, was filled with many myths and misconceptions after the ball was over. In fact, our look at Gilded Age balls will be in two parts. Next week's show will focus entirely on the background and story of the Bradley Martins and their famous ball with a very special guest whose relatives the Bradley Martins actually were. Don't put away your ball gown quite yet. We still have somewhere to go. Balls in New York's social history from the 18th to the early 19th century were certainly nothing new. Public dances were frowned upon and gatherings of the sort were held instead in private homes. This, of course, meant that you had to have a room to accommodate upwards of 100 people and feed and water them. Balls were the territory, even from early on, of the social elite. It was a chance for people to mingle, please note, flashing light for possible matrimony, forge business relationships, and catch up on bits of gossip. The Skirmerhorn family was one of the most noted in old early 19th century Knickerbocker, New York. A family who had made their money as merchants, they had been part of New York society since the original Skirmerhorn ancestors settled in New Amsterdam in the 1600s. William and Anne Skirmerhorn had their grand home on the corner of Lafayette Place and Great Jones Street in today's Ho neighborhood. And do note. Carolyn Webster Skirmerhorn, who went on to marry William Backhouse Astor II to become the Mrs. Astor, grew up right around the corner on Bond Street, and she herself was part of the Skirmerhorn tribe. In 1854, the Skirmerhorns threw a great ball that woke old New York up since most of the social entertainments up to this point, while Mary bordered on the dutiful but dull. The Skirmerhorns ball in 1854 had a theme. Themes were a huge thing in the Gilded Age, and we are going to come back to this. The theme was the Court of Versailles, which, if you think about it, is rather fascinating from the point of view that the American Revolution that we fought to make sure we didn't have a monarchy was less than 75 years in the past. And furthermore, in France, during their revolution specifically, The guillotine had chopped many heads in the names of social inequality. Costume balls, known as fancy dress balls, carried a very specific message. It meant you couldn't just reach into your closet and wear something you had, probably. You had to have something made that fit the period required. And all of this required money. And so the idea of a fancy dress ball was yet another way to show off the fact that your wealth – forced you to run out and spend on this kind of thing. The other part of this, if you were really going to do it right, was to outfit all your domestic staff in period dress, and the skirmerhorns, with great indulgence, outfitted their servants in 18th century livery, stockings, aprons, and wigs. One of the guests at that ball, we should note, was the young social climbing snob Ward McAllister, now living in New York, attempting to practice law, but really taking notes for his own assault on the world of balls later in the century. Throughout most of the 19th century, balls remained a private entertainment held in private homes. While the city did see some grand balls held to honor distinguished guests to the city, for example, the Prince of Wales Ball, held in 1861 at the Academy of Music, it wasn't until 1870, which may surprise some listeners, that Archibald Gracie broke the mold and held the first ball in a public restaurant— And that was, of course, the socially sanctioned sacred halls of Delmonico's. Balls in a public restaurant proved a new and deeply lucrative revenue stream for Delmonico's and other establishments. But really, having your ball at Delmonico's and making sure everyone knew about it was the only thing that mattered. Balls were part of the annual social season, which began, proceeded, and ended on a specific schedule— Unless you broke the rules. Alva Vanderbilt broke the rules. But I promise, we'll get back to her. Summer was long in those years of the Gilded Age. Spring trips to Europe transitioned into the migration of the silked and the satined hordes, to the watering holes of Saratoga around mid-century, and to, of course, Newport toward the end. Society stayed in Newport through September, and by the first crisp days of October, the houses, palazzi, and chateaux along Fifth Avenue were showing signs of life, and dust covers lifted and floors polished for the return of their owners and the beginning of the season. The season ran until the beginning of Lent. Each October, there were two major events that were crucial to one's calendar that announced the opening of the social season of mingling and merrymaking. The annual horse show, usually held at Madison Square Garden on 26th Street, was one, and the opening night of the Metropolitan Opera from 1883 onward in its brand new opera house on Broadway and 39th Street was the other. While the gentlemen seemed to pay attention to the horses, and some ladies and gentlemen perhaps actually enjoyed the music at the opera, neither event was about what it purported to be. These were events where the boxes at the horse show and the boxes at the opera were in fact mini stage sets designed to show off their social actors and actresses in all their jewels and gowns and to crystallize the sorting process of creating what some considered a correct society. These were places for the arbiters of society like Carolyn Astor and Ward McAllister to inspect the troops and put together an acceptable battalion. Unless you were an Astor or a Vanderbilt, which required a heavier entertaining schedule, a hostess may throw one or two balls a season. Grand balls were a good way to stay visible, and you could pay back some accumulated invitations without paying too much attention. Once the date had been chosen for ball, invitations engraved in filigreed writing on heavy cream-colored stock would be sent out four to six weeks in advance. The sending of an invitation could act as a power play on the part of a socially prominent hostess. In some cases, invitations were sent and balls announced with little time before the actual event, and you were then forced to attend lest you risk the danger of being dropped from the rolls. Sending an invitation late, sometimes even audaciously sent the very week a ball was to take place, carried the subliminal message that of course you would be free and available when a particular hostess snapped her gloved fingers demanding your presence. Ball invitations were purposely vague and almost never were so vulgar as to actually say ball, often just the word dancing was placed inconspicuously in one corner. But no one was confused. Everyone knew. It was then essential to make the domestic staff click into gear and make sure the ballroom was prepared. These rooms, the largest in a home, often doubled as picture galleries, and the mansions that had true ballrooms that could accommodate the famous number of around 400 were in fact few. Sometimes, homes had extensions added onto them to create a sort of instant ballroom if the need arose. Chandeliers were dusted, scalding water splashed on the woodwork and then scrubbed. One reported technique was that floors were wiped with milk, allowed to dry, and washed off to leave a brilliant sheen. And furniture was then removed to make way for the dancing. What you would actually encounter at a ball varied little from ball to ball in terms of how an evening progressed. Balls started late and in some cases were preceded by attendance at a performance of the opera. That meant you would show up at the opera in your finery around 8 p.m. Remember that corset, folks. Sit through, perhaps, an act, an intermission, and some of the next act, before getting up and leaving well before the ending of the performance to arrive at the ball in your carriage around 11 p.m. Although she threw other balls throughout the season, Caroline Astor was famous for her annual opera ball, usually held on the first or second Monday of January. Mrs. Astor was a regular attendee of the opera and made it a practice to arrive on Monday nights at precisely 9pm, whether or not that was the time that the opera actually began. She lasted an act and perhaps an intermission to greet those who came into her box, but then flung her furs around her and disappeared in a shimmer of diamonds, never seeing the final curtain, it seems, of any opera she ever attended. With Mrs. Astor's departure, the rest of the audience let out a collective sigh and knew they could soon follow suit. Her one exception was the night she gave her opera ball. She remained at her brownstone mansion at Fifth Avenue and 34th Street, or later after 1893 at her double mansion on Fifth Avenue and 65th Street and awaited her guests. Upon arriving at the Astor Ball, you would abandon your capes, cloaks, and furs in the reception hall and proceed to the drawing room, where Caroline would be stationed under a particularly flattering portrait painted of her by Carolus Duran. Writers have noted that as she aged, this practice took on the shades of Dorian Gray. She was usually accompanied by her daughter, Carrie, or her daughter-in-law, Eva. Caroline Astor was a rather short woman of a certain avoir du She wore a black wig to cover her thinning hair and also wore a black, purple, or dark blue gown accessorized with as many diamonds as she could affix to it and to herself without toppling over. Guests were meant to arrive close to the appointed hour and not drift in at random times. One of the costs, of course, of any ball was the hiring of an orchestra, sometimes too, And some of the grander balls had celebrity conductors and orchestras like Patrick Gilmore, the popular military band conductor, or even operetta composer Victor Herbert, or perhaps members of the orchestra of the Metropolitan Opera, hired on a non-opera night. A ball kicked off with a grand march, usually led by the hostess and the most important gentleman guest of honor. At one ball held at Delmonico's, the opening set was led by President Benjamin Harrison, who had been invited. The grand march led into a section called the quadrille, which was usually a series of choreographed dances rehearsed for the guests' entertainment, sometimes by the younger members of society. It could be a moment particularly advantageous to debutantes for the visibility factor. Once the quadrille had been completed, the floor opened up for a series of waltzes, galops, and polkas. In order to refresh oneself, often lemonade was available and gentlemen, out of fatigue or boredom, could disappear off to a library or designated room to smoke, which was never done in the presence of the ladies. A buffet supper of up to 10 or 15 courses was served around 1 a.m., Mrs. Astor preferred a seated affair, and guests at her opera ball sat at the more than fifty round tables in her immense dining room to make their way through course after course served on her famous golden plates. Following the supper, dancing commenced with a section of the evening called the cotillion, or German cotillion, which eventually became known as just the German. The German was essentially a mixer at its most basic level and could resemble some of the 18th century reels, contras, and line dances that we think of at Jane Austen's balls. It was led by a gentleman of honor. Ward McAllister led many of them as he would happily tell you. A German could be a circle dance or included chairs onto which guests sat, only to be chosen by a partner, dance, and then be replaced by a new partner as the dance progressed. The German was followed by another series of dances for couples before a final dance, often a reel, would be danced around six o'clock in the morning as breakfast was being served Party favors, which ranged from fans to gold cigarette cases, could be distributed, and the guests finally were able to go home. Etiquette at a ball was enormously important, and one had no choice but to adhere strictly to it. As laid out by historians, it was detailed and clearly complicated. For example... If a single gentleman was invited to a ball, he out of courtesy asked the hostess to be introduced to any young woman who might like to dance. In general, if a young man and a young woman had not been introduced properly in advance, this ritual was not sufficient to be considered an introduction, and they would be unable to see each other socially if a spark had indeed ignited. Men were free to roam the ballroom floor either alone or in groups. Women could not cross the floor or circulate unless accompanied by a gentleman or a chaperone. If a young woman was asked to dance and she preferred to decline the offer, she was required to sit that dance out and not accept any offer from another. A gentleman had to be very careful in placing his hand on a woman's waist— It was essential that he wear gloves at all times, and a gentleman who appeared at a ball gloveless was considered vulgar. The gloves prevented any perspiration from the gentleman's hands to damage the fine fabrics and embroidery on his partner's gown. Furthermore, a gentleman could only place his hand on her waist just as the music began and was required to remove it once the music ended or so the etiquette manuals stated. Greg King, in his book A Season of Splendor, The Court of Mrs. Astor in Gilded Age, New York, recounts a special nuance of communication between young men and young women at a ball. An entire system of flirting and covert messages had been codified around the use of fans, gloves, and handkerchiefs, and these were deployed with great regularity. If a lady bit the top of a gloved finger, she wished a gentleman to leave. If she dropped her gloves, it indicated she loved him. Whereas a handkerchief twisted in the right hand signaled that her heart belonged to another. A fan held in front of her face with the right hand bade the gentleman follow her. If quickly swept across her forehead, it meant that they were being watched, If a quick opening and folding of the fan met the gentleman, he at once understood he had been dismissed. I personally think that we should bring back fans. And so you see, my friends, one really had to be alert and aware during a ball in order not to miss any clues as to what was actually going on. Without question, the most important dramatic aspect of any ball were the gowns and the fashion displayed on the backs, fronts, tops, and sides of the guests. Although talented New York designers and seamstresses made their contributions, for many, it was de rigueur to have one's gowns custom-made in Paris. Without question, the house of choice was that of worth. The British-born Frederick Worth had come to Paris in the 1840s and opened his eponymous fashion house in 1858. It was with the patronage of the Empress Eugénie, the fashion-forward wife of Napoleon III, that his career and his designs became the most coveted and desirable in both Europe and America. It was said that his designs somehow were able to capture the unique individual personality and charm of each woman for whom they were custom-made. And indeed, no expense at all was spared in the choice of fabrics, the finest satins and silks and accessories of fine lace, gold and silver thread, and the addition of jewels to necklines, bodices, and skirts. Gowns were often decorated with exquisite embroidery done with priceless threads and tiny pearls and jewels. White satin was often a favorite, as could be the great solid dark colors. This was all for the effect of showing off, in many ways, the very point of any dress—the jewelry worn on top and around it. How much jewelry a woman of society owned was one thing, but how much she was able to trot out and display at a social function was quite another. One is reminded of Coco Chanel's old and often-repeated rule that, before leaving the house, one should always take one thing off. Gilded Age socialites would have looked utterly confused at such an absurd idea. It was a husband's pleasure and perhaps duty to purchase and then adorn his wife with as much fine jewelry as one could afford, and often even that was not a criteria for holding back on the purchases of diamonds, rubies, emeralds, pearls, and sapphires. The often-recounted comment about Caroline Astor was that she wore so many diamonds that she resembled a walking chandelier as the crystals reflected light at her throat, neck, bodice, waist, fingers, and wrists. At some of the grander balls, actual security guards were employed to appear dressed as servants or liveried help, just to make sure no priceless jewels were snatched from one's throat by an interloper. In some cases, women wore copies of their originals just to ensure safekeeping, and one noted society hostess took the extra step of having her jewelry actually sewn onto her gown to make any possible attempt at pulling it off nearly impossible. To give you an idea of just how over-the-top this got, I'll give you an example. We are shortly to discuss a couple of the most famous balls during the Gilded Age, and they were the fancy dress or costume balls that I mentioned earlier. Given the hostess's directions on the invitations, the idea was to come as a figure from history and more often than not, as a result of slim creativity at times, the result was a cluster of Madame de Pompadour's, Marie Antoinette's, or Queen Elizabeth's. During the 19th century, and for reasons which would be an entirely separate show, a number of actual crown jewels once owned by European royalty came on the market. Most famously was the sale of the French crown jewels in 1887. Consequently, it was perfectly possible, if one got particularly creative, to appear at a costume ball as a historical queen or princess and actually be wearing the jewels that once belonged to the person as whom you were masquerading. Wearing once royal jewels got you major society points, and a number of stunning examples appeared at balls adorning the décolletage of Gilded Age elites. Alva Vanderbilt wore a great strand of pearls that once belonged to Catherine the Great along with Empress Eugenie's diamond and pearl brooches. At her famous ball, Cornelia Bradley Martin wore jewels that not only once belonged to Empress Josephine, but for good measure, wore two of Marie Antoinette's own ruby bracelets fastened together as a choker. And as part of her famous chandelier diamond ensemble, Caroline Astor often favored wearing a large, oversized brooch known as a stomacher that was also once owned by the doomed queen of the French Revolution. And with that, I am going to take a short break, and you may want to refresh your lemonade or refill your buffet plate, and I'll be back to take you back to the ball. And we're back. I'm Carl Raymond, host of the Gilded Gentleman History Podcast. This week, we are taking a close look at balls, the Gilded Age's most outrageous parties. As I mentioned at the top of the show, balls on the social calendars of New York's elite were nothing new. However, in the period following the Civil War, when New York and indeed American society was casting about to shape an identity, something changed to refocus and redefine the ball as a battleground and the ultimate sorting service to define what society really was or could be, according to some. And that began with our major general of manipulation, Ward McAllister. Ward was a key player in the social stakes, and for those less familiar with who he really was and what he really did, I devoted an entire show to sharing that story to which I encourage you to listen. To give you a clue in the title, I called it The Education of a Snob. Ward McAllister, most famously known as the henchman of Caroline Astor, established the first series of balls that really attempted to weed out and present a true New York society, certainly as he saw it. They were called the Patriarch's Balls. Since it was open season, in a sense, a self-made social arbiter like McAllister could decide what he thought society should be, and along with Mrs. Astor, together they could decide who was in and who was out. The Patriarch's Balls, which ran from 1881 through to almost the end of the 1890s, were the first balls and the first system put in place to bring together mostly the old guard with a carefully chosen selection of the new arrivals. The Balls, in part copied from the famed Allmax Balls of the 18th century world of London, were named for McAllister's Board of Patriarchs. Men only, of course, who deemed to be significantly regarded in the social fabric of New York and act as its arbiters. Each patriarch was given the responsibility of inviting four men and five women to each ball to begin the culling process. McAllister was adamant that the balls take place at Delmonico's. The New York Times regularly reported on the balls taking place at the restaurant on Fifth Avenue and 26th Street, and here is a description of one in January of 1888. New York society can stand a great deal in the way of amusement and excitement, and that was proved by the attendance at the Second Patriarch's Ball last evening, nearly 400 people being present. Ward McAllister, under whose personal management that was conducted, eclipsed even his usual success. The decorations by Klunder were elaborate. The walls were decorated with plaques of pinks, lilies of the valley, yellow tulips, and hyacinth. The mirrors were draped with roses. Floral decorations were yet another element at Balls, either in a restaurant ballroom or in a private home, to show off the great expense and effort required. In most of the reports of Balls the day after, the abundance of the floral displays, hangings, ropes, and garlands are given extensive coverage, and the example I just read is very typical. The point being, everything here, certainly at a ball in January, everything would have been out of season and would have needed to be brought in from elsewhere under far more costly conditions than we have available today. Flowers were supplied by several very busy New York florists, most often by Clunders, which operated on Broadway just south of the Madison Square location of Delmonico's. American Beauty roses were Caroline Astor's favorite floral extravagance, and it's been reported that they cost $25 a stem in today's money, and she used thousands of them at her balls. It was reported that one of the bills for Alva's ball was over $200,000 in today's money, and that was just for the roses. When Alva Vanderbilt threw her audacious ball on that March evening of 1883, she thought of it as a housewarming. An understatement you could certainly argue, but she was right. She and her husband, Willie Kay, had just built their Richard Morris Hunt-designed faux French chateau right in the middle of Fifth Avenue at number 660, and she wanted everyone to know. And her choice of a date for the ball was significant. She chose a date following Easter, by which time all other social events had since ended. Alva wanted a wide berth, and all eyes on her. Aside from her titled old best friend, the duchess-to-be, the other draw for those lucky enough to receive an invitation was that they were dying to see the house. Alva cast her net wide, about 1,200 invitations were issued to the loyal and the lucky Alva, through sheer will and strategic architectural salvage, had created a mansion that included Renaissance fireplaces, Baroque paneling, medieval-inspired stained glass, and 18th-century boiserie. In addition to jewelry, if you could get your hands on any of Marie Antoinette's actual furniture, that counted for additional points, and indeed Alva had a secretary that once belonged to her— that is now sitting in the Metropolitan Museum of Art. She amassed a painting collection that even included work by Rembrandt and a painting that once belonged to Madame de Pompadour herself. Upon entering Alva's palace, guests found themselves in a long, grand hall with a floor of polished stone and a dark, paneled oak ceiling from which hung antique Italian tapestries. A dramatic staircase intended to remind one of that great chateau of Chambord rose up to the right, which guests climbed to greet Alva and Lady Mandeville. By 8.30 p.m. that night, costumed footmen in the dark maroon of the Vanderbilt livery had unrolled the dark red carpet down the steps leading to the front doors, and police were already pushing crowds back in anticipation of the first arrivals, which began at 10 p.m. and had clogged Fifth Avenue by 11.30 Alva's direction had been for a fancy dress ball featuring historical dress, though she was not specific about the period. The results included the creative and the clever, along with the wonderful and the just plain weird. Joan of Arc stood in line with Queen Elizabeth I, who mingled with Louis XVI, and King Lear wandered around. Alva herself was dressed as a Venetian princess, and her friend Consuela, Lady Mandeville, matched an image from a Dutch old master painting of Van Dyck. One of the most innovative costumes was worn by Alice Vanderbilt, Alva's sister-in-law, in in celebration of the new electricity. And she came in a worth-designed gown, imitating light itself, embroidered with gold thread and a torch that she carried in one hand that lit up by way of a concealed battery. As for the weird, another sister-in-law of Alva's came dressed as a hornet in brown velvet and yellow satin. Another guest, dressed as a butterfly and her escort, appeared as a lepidopterist who ran around after her all night trying to catch her with a big net. And then there was Miss Strong, who, in an attempt to channel her feline powers, it seems, appeared as a cat with a skirt of dangling cattails in the back and a headpiece appearing to be a stuffed feline perched on the top of her hair. Um, was that real? Willie Kay, Alva's husband, chose to dress as the Duc de Guise, a 16th century French nobleman who was murdered in the Chateau of Blois which coincidentally had been the architectural model for Alva's Chateau. Other figures among the guests included those dressed as monks, dairymaids, bullfighters, assorted noblemen, and ladies-in-waiting. For the men, Louis Sixteenth seemed to be a popular choice. Various figures float around as to the actual cost of the ball, but based on several reliable sources, it seems It all clocked in at just about $5 million in today's money. Alva had succeeded with her ball. It served to get her and the Vanderbilts generally accepted in society. Following the ball, invitations appeared for Willie Kay to join several of the most exclusive men's clubs, a male sign of social acceptance. And Mrs. Astor reciprocated with an invitation for Willie and Alva to attend her opera ball that following January. But as we know, Alva's path was not clear on the force of one ball. No matter how grand, she still had to turn her own daughter into a duchess. Before we take a look at our final ball for this episode, it bears commenting that in addition to trying to outdo each other, burn up money on things like diamond dog collars and gold calling card cases, if you were really daring, you could go for special effects at your dinner or ball. In several previous episodes, I've shared the stories of the piles of sand that greeted guests at one ball who, with silver shovels, were greatly amused to dig out priceless jewels that they could then take home. And then there was the dinner served to guests while seated on horseback, and of course, the screaming and mating swans that infamously swam around at a dinner at Delmonico's. Perhaps the most misguided effect intended to astound ball guests with beauty and fancy was the butterfly finale. At one particular debutante's ball, the young lady's father had the bright idea of holding thousands of butterflies in nets high above the unsuspecting guests' heads, and then to release the nets at the evening's penultimate moment. When that moment arrived, instead of the beautiful creatures flying around the ballroom to the anticipated delight of the guests, ladies and gentlemen were showered with bodies of thousands of the perished butterflies, likely done in by the heat and their confinement. Not every clever idea is a good one, my friends, to say nothing of the well-being and the protection of some of our friends in nature. As the 19th century began to wane and the 20th century entered a more progressive era, it seems much of the outrageous shows of wealthy one-upmanship became less evident and one could argue certainly less relevant. There were two last gasps of the old extravagance, one perhaps the grandest of them all, if anything is relative, and that will be the subject of our entire show next week. However, 1905 brought a ball that in many ways signified the demise of ostentatious blind wealth once and for all. Unlike Alva's strictly strategic goal of assaulting society with her bash, the ball given by James Hazen Hyde in 1905 didn't secure his position on top of society's gilded pinnacle. It knocked him completely off it. James Hazen Hyde was a young man that seemed to have it all. Looks, certainly. Photographs show him as lean and athletic with thick dark hair and a well-groomed short beard and mustache. A portrait of him painted in Paris in 1901 when he was 25 years old shows him in a decidedly aristocratic, even regal and perhaps slightly seductive pose. No doubt intended to portray a desirable young man of intellect, cultural sophistication, and breeding. Born in 1876 in New York, he was well-educated at an early exclusive boys' school in Manhattan and then, of course, at the prestigious Harvard. He was a passionate art lover and devoted Francophile. He spoke French fluently and worked to cement alliances between French writers to allow them to come to America to share their work. He loved racing, particularly coach racing that he enjoyed with his own horses and collection of carriages on his Long Island estate. And it will surprise no one to learn that James Hazen Hyde was born wealthy. His father was Henry Baldwin Hyde, the owner and founder of the Equitable Life Insurance Association. James had been appointed to the board soon after his graduation from college, yet it was with his father's death in 1899 that James became the majority stakeholder in the billion-dollar business and was on track to assume the presidency, per his father's will, In 1906. Along with his precious collection of French books, his horses and fine clothes from Paris, James Hazen Hyde loved a really good party. He attended those that were de rigueur of his time, but of course, after all, there was nothing quite like throwing your own, and that he did. On the night of January 31st, 1905, Fifth Avenue, outside Sherry's Restaurant and Ballroom, was full of carriages and onlookers, the kind of which had greeted so many balls in the past Gilded Age years. Celebrating his love of France, James chose as his theme a night at Versailles, and it was to be a fancy dress costume ball. Hardly original, let's remember that old skirmerhorn ball in the 1850s that had Versailles as its theme, too. Nonetheless, society's A-list once again donned their powdered wigs, petticoats, and brought their peacock feather fans to return, for a night anyway, to the luxury of the Louis. I suppose this devil-may-care, spend-at-all-costs extravagant image of the world of Versailles appealed to those who still wanted to toss their money in the air and really not care where it landed. And the result of James' extravagance was the total price of this bash has been estimated reported at around $6 million in today's money. Hyde's Ball really was the last gasp of the Gilded Age, and it's been written in some ways. It was making a parody of all the over-the-top sideshows under the Gilded Age Big Top over the past 25 years. In terms of how the ball played out that night, it followed the format that we've discussed in this show. Debutantes danced an adorable quadrille with costume Pierros as their partners, Two floors of sherrys were festooned with the requisite out-of-season flowers and greenery including real grass. Statuary and various shrubs had been added to make one feel like the real thing. Why isn't that the Grand Trianon over there by the elevator? To keep it all so very, very French, Hyde brought over Madame Réjean, a star of the Parisian stage, to perform alongside the orchestra and the ballet from the Metropolitan Opera who had been ordered up for the night. It was even reported that at one point, fueled by the spirit of French frivolity, Madame Réjean danced a can-can on top of a table. Things were changing. This was no opera ball Caroline Astor style. By now, photography and better photography allowed us to see a bit of that night. Photographs show us names such as Stanford White, Mamie Fish, and John Jacob Astor that were among the crowd that showed up. The advent of now the more common photography had its downside as well. The press, who often could not wait to report on details of these grand affairs, could often report on the obvious extravagance now accompanied by photography attesting to the very thing. In the case of James Hazen Hyde, the lavish expenditure fueled power struggles within the equitable life insurance company. Tensions developed among those who wanted to rise in the company, and some used the grandiosity of the ball to support arguments that James was not fiscally responsible enough to manage and grow a company if he chose to spend so wildly on this kind of thing. False charges that the expenses of the ball had in fact been charged to the company did nothing to diminish the smear campaign against Hyde. Further investigations were made into the company as well as its competitors, which revealed allegedly questionable business practices and indeed some less than above board schemes to make money at the expense of policyholders. New York State was required to step in to mediate and manage investigations, and indeed the result was the passing of a series of stricter laws regulating the life insurance industry. The negative press, controversy, and scandal grew to such a degree that James Hayes and Hyde had no choice but to sell his shares and retreat to Paris, where he remained for over 35 years before returning to America. The balls we've looked at in this show served a variety of functions. Mrs. Astor's served to define society itself, Alva's served to secure her place in it, and James Hazen Hyde's ball forced him out of it entirely. In the annals of Gilded Age Balls, there is one we haven't discussed, although I've alluded to it. Some say it was the greatest party ever thrown, but that, as you can certainly see, is a rather subjective statement. Nonetheless, it was an important ball, and it's one around which many misconceptions swirl to this day. In an attempt to tell the story and diffuse any myths, please join me next week for our second part of our look at Gilded Age Balls, when I will take you to the Bradley Martin Ball of 1897. My guest will be a very special one. Richard J. Hutto knows the story of the Bradley Martins and the ball better than anyone, his great-grandparents-in-law were, in fact, the Bradley Martins who gave it. Thank you, my listeners, for joining me for another episode of the Gilded Gentleman History Podcast. The Gilded Gentleman is produced by Bowery Boys Media, and this episode was edited and produced by Kieran Gannon. I invite you to become a patron of the show on patreon.com slash thegildedgentleman. Your support truly helps me with the research, the writing, and the production of the show. I could not do it without you. I'll see you soon. And after all, what's life without a little glint of gold?